Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Anyways, let's look at Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is where we're at tonight. And uh, let's start in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time of study. We pray that you give us insight into Ephesians, and thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we, 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 we were waiting for you, Willie. We figured as soon as you walked in, we could start. So, um, The book of Ephesians. Uh, probably, of all of the books in the New Testament, this is almost my second favorite. Second favorite. My second favorite. Romans. Romans is my favorite book. And uh, no, it's not. Um, Ephesians is my second favorite. And I think the reason for that is if you really get a good handle on Romans and you get a good handle on Ephesians, you've got a pretty good handle on theology, period. I mean, there's, there's really not a whole lot of theology either one of those misses. Um, Romans, of course, gives us all the theology about salvation and about uh, the whole notion of sanctification. What does it mean to be saved and justified and glorified? And Ephesians gives us a lot of insight into the church and how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ and how the church is to operate. And in fact, uh, as, you, as we go through Colossians, um, you're going to find Ephesians and Colossians are quite similar. Um, I think of the 140 five or so verses you find in Colossians, 70 of them, almost half of them appear in some form in Ephesians. So they're almost parallel books. And um, the reason for that, many people think, is very easy. Um, If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, um, the word Ephesus there appears in only a handful of manuscripts. In most manuscripts it doesn't have that term Ephesus, it's just to the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And the phrase who are in Ephesus is just not there. Now before you freak on the inerrancy of the Bible and all that kind of stuff, um, I think the best way to understand that is, and by the way all these manuscripts that do not have it are all the older manuscripts. So the only ones that we have are the are the more recent ones that has the in Ephesus in there. Very few of them have it all. And uh, I think the answer for that is fairly simple, and that is that Ephesians is probably, most likely, a circular letter. And what it means by that is a letter that's written in general terms that is circulated among a group of churches. It's not to a particular church. And uh, the reason we think that is, one, um, the omission of in Ephesus in most all of the manuscripts. And also, one of the interesting things about Paul's epistles is uh, what does he usually have right at the end of all of his epistles? Yeah. Say hi to Joe and tell Sam, I, you know, and I really miss us so-and-so. You have a lot of personal um, references to people. 
in all of them, except this one. In uh, most of the books, does he end with his own handwriting as well? No. Galatians, he specifically says this was written with my own hand. Um, most of the time he used a, a, a secretary or an amanuensis to write it. Well, I thought I had read somewhere, maybe in a study book or something, that most of the time though, they would do like the last few paragraphs or something just so people could see it. Yes. Yeah, it was from him. Yeah. Galatians is definitely that way because there's a question in Galatia. You know, the whole theological question. But um, in Ephesians, you don't have any personal references, which is kind of odd because that's what Paul really hits on. Yeah. So then, would this guy Tychicus, is he the guy who brought him to the letter? Yeah, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Tychicus. He's the mailman. <laughs> yeah. He's the deliverer. Um, Tychicus, and, here, and then again goes back to, to as, as you compare, and this is interesting, as you compare the book of Ephesians and Colossians, you note something. That is, number one, they're quite a bit alike, like we already mentioned. I mean, there's significant similarities between them. Also, in the book of Colossians, Paul makes a lot of personal references. And he also states that I am sending Tychicus with this letter to you. All right? And then he makes a reference in there. He says, I want you to read this epistle, i.e. Colossians, over at Laodicea, and I want you to read the letter I sent to Laodicea in your church. All right? Also, Ephesians is one of Paul's prison epistles. All right? And what we mean by prison epistles is if you look at the chronology of the life of Paul, basically, in around A.D. 58 or so, 58 to 60, Paul was in prison in Caesarea Philippi. And that was in um, Palestine, in Caesarea Philippi. I think there's one L and two P's there. Um, and that's when he was under Festus and Felix, if you remember that, at the end of the book of Acts. And then right around, sometime around A.D. 60, right thereabouts, we can date that pretty closely because of we know the, the change in the governorship of Felix there when he came in. Paul made his trip to Rome. All right. And that would have been um, in probably the fall of AD 60, spring of AD 61. So in AD 61, he was in Rome. And how long was he in prison in Rome? Two About two years. All right. All right, and then evidently sometime around A.D. 63, Paul was released from Rome, okay? And, the, and that, it gets a little fuzzy there. Um, you got the fuzzy dates. But somewhere around A.D. 63, 60, Paul, Paul was free. And at this point, he may have gone and visited, finally, Spain, like he always wanted to do, all right? And then sometime around A.D. 65, Paul was arrested, and taken to Rome for his second imprisonment. And sometime around A.D. 66, sometime 67, Paul was martyred. Okay? And um, the books that come out of this time period here are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. These are, that's Paul's pastoral epistles, we call them. All right? So this is just a rough chronology of Paul's life, somewhere around. These, this we can pretty much pick out pretty clearly. Um, we say he was probably arrested in AD 65 because remember, anybody know what happened in AD 64? Uh, the temple? No, that was AD 70. 70. 
Nero played a fiddle while Rome burned. And what did Nero blame it on? Christians. So the great Neronian persecution breaks out right there. Many say that's why Paul was arrested the second time. And if you read the book of 1 Timothy, he was arrested at Ephesus and taken rather hastily, it seems, because he had to leave a lot of stuff behind. All right. So that's Paul's, that was Paul's second arrest. Okay. So anyways, when Paul was in Rome, he wrote four books of the New Testament in that time frame. He wrote the book of Ephesians here. He wrote the book of Philippians. And in fact, he wrote the book of Philippians probably towards the end of his Roman imprisonment. And we'll see that in Philippians 1. He talks about he's been before the king and he thinks he's going to be freed and all that. So there's a lot of references to his imminent freedom. He also wrote the book of Colossians here. And he wrote one other book, and that's the book of Philemon. Okay? Those are the four prison epistles. Okay? And they were all written somewhere between A.D. 61 and 62. There's something interesting and common about three of these books. All right? First of all, how would Paul get this book back to the church? Yeah, he didn't have mail or FedEx in those days. Somebody had to take that book and walk with it back to the place. And you find a reference to, a, to one individual in three of these books. Um, this guy named Tychicus. And he's mentioned in Ephesians, he's mentioned in Colossians, and he's mentioned in Philemon. All right? And so the, the, the thinking and, and, and follow the thinking, um, about how many trips would a person make back to this area from Rome in that two-year period? Would he have made, would Tychicus have likely made more than one trip back? Well, no, if each trip takes you about four months, you know, it's not like you hop on a plane and bzz, you're there. Um, it was a long trip, maybe to get over and back and over and back. All right. And plus, how far apart were Colossians and Ephesians, Colossian of Ephesus? A few miles. Yeah, they were like sister cities. All right, they were very close together. All right, so it's likely, it's highly likely that Tychicus took the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon all at the same time back to the cities of Laodicea, not Ephesus, but Laodicea, because Laodicea was a sister city to Colossae. They were like, you know, like a Lorraine Illyria or Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, they were really close together in the same valley. Tychicus probably took all three books back, and what we know as Ephesians most likely is, and my theory is, the book of, should be the book of Laodiceans, the Laodiceans. And that is the book that is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, where Paul says, I want you to read this book in Laodicea, and the letter I wrote to Laodicea. So he wrote a letter to them. We know that. I want that one to be read in your place. And since Ephesians and Colossians sound so much alike, have some of this, mostly the same material, probably they were written about the same time. I mean, they're talking about the same kind of themes, plus the fact that Tychicus is mentioned there, there, and there, plus the fact that we know in Colossians and Philemon, both of those were together because Onesimus actually accompanied Tychicus with the book of Colossians and 
Guess who became the pastor of the book of, of the church in Colossae? Onesimus. All right. He, he, that's according to um, religious history. He became the pastor. And Philemon, his master, and we'll talk about that, Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. So all of that, all of that stuff put together would make us believe that Ephesians is in fact a circular letter. It was written to, to, to be circulated among the churches and that it was probably, we can't prove it, but probably the book mentioned in Colossians as a letter that Paul wrote to Laodicea and was taken by Tychicus in the same journey back during Paul's Roman imprisonment. Because it was highly unlikely, it's like Tychicus, it's like walking from Los Angeles to Cleveland walking back to Los Angeles, getting another letter, and then walking back to Lorraine. All right, I mean, that didn't make any sense. Most likely, he took all three of them at the same time. So, that's... So many church fathers accepted this book, right? Mm -hmm. If I remember right... Uh, and there's nothing wrong with putting... F yeah, and there's nothing wrong with putting Ephesus in there because it was written to Ephesians and Laodicea and Colossae and... I mean, that, that doesn't destroy the validity of the book. It was, it was a book written to a group of people. Was there any dispute? No, no. Um, I don't have all my notes in front of me, but I don't think there is. There's not much dispute on that. If you go out, if you can get to my website, if you go to New Testament survey, I have the survey note background of this book. And I don't think there's much dispute. Yeah? Has any of the original letters survived? No. What's the oldest account they have? About 200. The oldest fragment they have is the John Ryland's papyrus, about 150 A.D. And that was a little fragment out of the book of John. And then they have a bunch from the 200s. But that's about as far back as they go. I am wondering, how did, when they were putting the Bible together, how did the um, guys, the monks, whoever was doing this, accomplish this? They do it during the Crusades or... Oh, that's really yeah, that's not, that's not, basically it was those books accepted by the church as a whole. That's the whole process of canonization. And if you go out to my website and you get to it, I have a chapter written on that, on, on how that process went about. Um, but God didn't, God didn't drop, the thing to understand is God didn't omit any books. He didn't allow any books to be omitted that should be there. You know, we have the books. So don't let, don't let the, the fact that, um, you know, this may be a circular letter throw you on the inerrancy issue because, you know, it, it was written to Ephesus and Laodicea and whoever. It may have even had a blank line in there, you know, to the church of, fill in the blank, you know. Here's the, it was written to the churches. Yeah, no, that, that's one of those things right there that's even worth fighting or arguing. No, it's not. No, because it, it was made. unless you're a KJV only guy that doesn't have any brains. Yeah, so it yeah there's not. It's not worth fighting. It was meant for believers, whether you're yeah. from Ephesians or Ephesians. And no theology is destroyed. There's no destruction of theology. You're not altering the deity of Christ or anything like that. And somewhere along the line, you've got it. You got to just realize when you get to the manuscript evidence, um, 99.9996 was that ivory soap or whatever pure you, you know there, there's there's a few there's a few verses hither and yon that there's an argument about and even then it doesn't destroy any theology 
I mean, there's, there's nothing altered, you know, that we would believe in. So, you know, I want people, you know, get a life. You don't need to fight over some of this stuff. Um, but this is, this is a circular letter, most likely written to the area. And by the way, Laodicea was close to Ephesus. If you get out your Bible maps, you'll find that Laodicea and, and Ephesus, or Laodicea and Colossae, are I think 10, 15 miles apart, something like that, if I remember right. And Ephesus is over on the coast, um, on the coastland. In fact, if you had a MacArthur Study Bible, it, well, it has the city of Ephesus here. It shows where it's at. Um, but it, it's fairly close. Nothing. I just think it's a great Bible. It's a great Bible. I got down a large print thing, you know. They had a truck back up to drop it off. It was, you know, it's a thing like this, you know. But, um, but anyways, this letter was written during Paul's Roman imprisonment back to the Christians at, if you want to make an Ephesus fine, it was the area, but maybe probably Laodicea. And it deals with a particular subject, and that is it deals with Christ, the head of the church. I mean, that's the theme of Ephesus. Um, in fact, Ephesus, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are similar. And the fact that Ephesians talks about the head, the head of the church, the church as, or Christ the head of the church, and Colossians talks about the body of Christ, us. So you got, you got a two-fold thing there. All right, I think I got that right. One of them is the head and one's the body. I'll find out when I give you the exam and I got it backwards. Yeah. All right. Um, and then uh, in verse 3, to 13, we have the longest sentence in the New Testament. Um, there's only one verb in that whole passage. And I think the verb there is blessed. Bless God. That's the verb. And everything else modifies that. And, uh, you know, without belaboring the whole theological issue of predestination election, which we are definitely going to be hitting in this particular passage, um, this is one of those passages that you're going to have to work through theologically wherever you land on that debate. Um, you've got to be able to handle all of the scripture, not the pieces that you like. Um, you want to be a bleeding heart Arminian and say whoever will may come, you've got to deal with the chosen before the foundation of the world verses. And if you want to be a hyper-Calvinist and say it's up to God and so why sweat it, you got to deal with the verses that talk about persuading men and taking the gospel and, and reaching the lost. Uh, you got to have both sides of that equation. So however you want to land, this is one of those passages you're going to have to be able to fit into your understanding of that whole theological discussion. But in verse 3, we have, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It talks about the source of our blessing. And that blessing is, the source is God. He has blessed us. And the idea here is He's blessed us with everything. Everything. Again, I don't think there's any room in our experience for complaining to God about anything. We have been blessed beyond measure. And He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing possible 
And uh, why did he do that? Because he wanted to. He wanted to. Because in the next verse it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame for him in love. Um, what you see here in this whole passage, and we're going to see that as we work through it, is the, the operation of the Trinity when it comes to our salvation. Um, when we look at the drama of redemption, each member of the Trinity takes a particular role in that drama. And what we see here in Ephesians chapter 1, we see the role of the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to do some things. Alright? And what it says in verse 3 is He is the one who blessed us, bestowed on us spiritual blessings. Alright? So the Father is the source of our spiritual blessing. All of them. And what would those include? What would those spiritual blessings include? Christ, eternal life, heaven, forgiveness. I mean, you name it. He is the source of all of that. And then it says here, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. All right. What does it mean He chose us? It means He chose us. I mean, you can't get any deeper than that. And when did this happen? Before time began. And that's before creation, God chose you. Alright, now however you want to, however you want to answer the whole predestination, election, all that, you've got to deal with that verse right there, He chose us. So somewhere you've got to be able to fit in to your theology, your theological system, God's choice. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And He chose us for a particular purpose. What was that? To be holy. So He determined, okay, I'm going to put the end product, which is holiness. Before the foundation of the world, God determined, He chose you and determined on the basis of that choice that you would be holy someday. Perfectly holy. He chose us. Holy and without blame. Now the whole question then becomes, why did He choose us? And the answer is because he wanted to. There really is no other answer. There's no other answer. There are three ways to look at this whole notion of predestination. All right. One of them is what we call, or what can be called, conditional. I'm going to put down. I'm going to use the tulip phrase. Conditional election. Conditional election. What that means is that God chose us based on some condition. Based on some reason for us choosing us. 
Now, what could those reasons be? Well, that's the good Calvinistic approach, but but conditional election people would say he chose you because, yeah, there's some potential in you. Um, you're a nice person. You're not as bad as Saddam Hussein. So you know, given the two of you, he'll pick you. Or there's some some innate goodness that you have, or there's some innate thing that he saw in you. All right. In other words, God's choice of you is conditional on some some um, characteristic of you. Alright? That's one way to look at this. Alright? Another one close to that notion is what is called prescient foreknowledge. And the whole idea there is that, well, since God knows everything, He, know, he knew who would choose Him if given the opportunity, so on the basis of that, He chose you. All right, so you know that's God looking down time and says, ah, "I see Alan will accept me if he if I give him the opportunity." Okay, so I'll choose him because I know he'll choose me. All right. Now the problem with prescient foreknowledge is that ultimately in that ultimately in both of these, well, here, let me ask you a question: What's the major problem with conditional election theologically? There's some innate something about you that's good. Bottom line, I mean, there's something about you that God likes that He doesn't like about the people He didn't choose. All right, so what does that cater to then? Your pride. You know, there's something about me that God likes. Isn't it wonderful that God chose me and not that other bum over there kind of thing? It, it, it caters to our pride. And quite honestly, and we're going to see this as we get into Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about depravity. And in Ephesians 2, it's interesting, God sees nothing good in us. There's nothing, the bottom line you need to understand that the Bible teaches, I think, fairly clearly, is that in and of yourself, there's really nothing innately good about you that would make God choose you for anything. There's nothing about you that would make him choose you. Alright? Now God chose us because he loves us, but it's not because we're innately, we have some innate quality about us that makes him attracted to us and not to others. What's the problem with prescient foreknowledge? Who ultimately in that system is responsible for salvation? I am. I mean, ultimately it's up to me. Really. And the only reason that God chose me is because ultimately He knew that I would choose Him. So, who did the choosing? I did. I did. And that removes God's sovereignty. And then there's the third way to understand this. And by the way, there's a lot of different flavors of this. I mean, I'm just giving you the, you know, the major flavors. But there's a lot of different ways to spin this thing. The other one is what I think the Bible teaches pretty clearly. And that's unconditional election. What does that mean? God chose us on the basis of just that He just wanted to. It, was, it wasn't because He looked down time and He saw that we were wonderful people. It's not because He thought we would be great. It's not because of any potential. It's not because we were better than anybody else. It's just 
on the basis of some reason in his mind, in his mind alone, he chose us. That removes pride. That makes God sovereign. He's not the one who's subject to his creation. We are subject to him. To me, that's the most biblical understanding. Now again, you have to work through this issue on your own. You have to fight it out. This is my best understanding. Where does free will enter into that? You don't have one. Did you hear um, Gary Clare when he spoke a couple weeks ago? Yeah. I really liked his illustration. Of, did you guys hear that? I would love to switch here. There, he, he like acted it out, and I need pictures to understand things. He had, in his mind, there's an arch. Yeah. Like a stone or whatever you want to think of it. And from the human perspective, while we are in this life, at the top of the arch, it says, Whosoever will may come. Yeah, whosoever will may come. And then, so you, in your humanness, you see that and you accept Christ and you walk through the arch. And on the other side of the arch, from the eternal side, it's the same arch, but on the other side of it, it says, For he chose us before the foundation of the world. So. I don't know, that just helped me so much, that mm -hmm. our perspective. Since we don't know what God knows, we did choose, but God did. Yeah. But we think we have free we will. We think we do. Wow. Yeah. We don't know what he knows. And, and the whole thing of free will, you know, I don't mean to be flippant when you say you don't have one, but really you don't. Your will is subject to what? To your nature, and what is your nature? Yeah, you're in bondage to that, that nature. So take any person in the world and give them two choices, the holy choice and an evil choice, or any number of evil choices, what will they choose? The evil choices, because they don't have within themselves the ability to choose the right choice. And by the right choice, we mean the right choice for the right reason, for the right motives. It's just not within our nature to do that. It's not. And that, 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 that is why our will is in bondage to sin. And that is why God has to break through the bondage to do something. Because if He didn't, you'd never choose Him. In and of yourself, you would never have chosen God. You'd have never chosen to walk through that arch. God had to draw you. God had to pull you. Remember back to the time of your salvation. Why, why did you? take Christ as Lord and Savior. What was it that, that compelled you to do that? Something that pulled you. It's not... It's something that pulled you. Alright? It's not because you made a wise decision. It's not because you analyzed the different religions of the world and picked Christianity. It's because God drew you to Him. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. You're dead, and dead is dead. I mean, you're dead in sin. And the thing is there is in death, in death you're unable to respond to your environment. Think of it in those terms. A spiritually dead person is unable to respond to the spiritual life around them because they're dead to that. They don't, they don't even, they're not even aware of that. So God has to do something to bring an awareness of their sin or they would never be aware of it. But is, is, are you saying God doesn't do that for every person? No. He doesn't make every person aware? No. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. Don't let that go away. But God is fair. Because the fair thing would be to send us all to hell. That's the fair thing. It's called mercy. See, if you don't deserve to be chosen in the first place, the very fact that you're chosen is mercy, not justice. I, mean, I know even in my own personal life, I'm only Christian because God really hard to do this. Mm -hmm. If God did not save anybody, would he be fair? Yeah. yeah. If God saved everybody, would he be fair? Whatever that God does is fair. Yeah, that's that's the whatever God does is fair. All right. So you got to understand that right off the get go. That that whatever God is not fair because He does fair things. A thing is fair because God does it. He's the definition. Oh, that's a good theological argument. And, and there's a lot of ways to understand that. Did Christ die for every human being? Because it doesn't say that he came and died for the elect. Did Christ die for every human being? I feel like I'm in the classic four years ago. Yeah, and I hate to go through it again for you, Don, but I mean some other people need to be brought along too. Probably tired of listening to it. If we've lost, he came to say, but we've lost, so basically everybody was lost, right? Everybody's lost. Did did Christ die? in an efficacious sense for the sin of every human being. In the notice I said in the efficacious sense. Where he actually forgives you. And the answer to that question is no he did not. Because if he did, how many people would get saved? Everybody. So you'd have universalism. If Christ died for every human being in the sense of that being applied to their sin, and if not believing in Jesus is a sin, which we would all say, yes, it is, then he died for that sin, which means that everybody is saved. But we know that everybody's not saved. So therefore, he did not die in the efficacious sense for the sins of all the world. Is there a different word besides efficacious? <laughs> <laughs> Effective? Thank you. Effective sense? Effective? I was with you until efficacious. Yeah, effective. Effective. It's efficacious is a theological term. Effective. Is that, is that your final answer? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was totally with you. But the part that I was, I'm, I don't want to say I'm having a hard time because I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. Oh, I must be wrong. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding, John. <laughs> but what I'm having a hard time with is, well, Christ did not forgive. That's that's the phrase that I'm having a hard time with. Mm -hmm. Christ did not forgive. Was it a choice? It's a choice on Christ's part to just forgive people who are Christians now and it was his choice to not forgive the others? Is that a correct statement? Well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of trees that died over that question. All right? 
that's so, where that's where I'm yeah. like let me give you my I'll give you my understanding, okay? <laughs> and then we'll go back and, and fit it into what I think this chapter supports where I'm coming from. I could be wrong. You know, because this is a tough subject. All right. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Um, but but the, this is my understanding. In eternity past, God chose you and me. He just for for whatever reason known only to Him, and not because of any good thing He saw in me or any any innate quality about me that would draw Him to me. He chose me, and I'll never understand why He did that. But he did. And on the basis of that choice, he chose to, and this is the other thing to understand, he did not choose me to start the process of salvation. He chose me to end the process. In other words, God's choice was not that I would get saved. God's choice was that I would be glorified. And one of the steps along the way is my salvation. Because here's the part that I with that phrase that I have a problem with, I guess, is if Christ chose to forgive some of the people. Christ didn't choose any of this. This is God the Father who's okay, doing well, the choosing. God, yeah, God the Father is God choosing. God the Father chose to forgive, let's say, if we split this room in half. Half of them. And he, cho he chose half. I'm on the right hand. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then the other half, he did not father, choose. Did not choose. But then in the Bible, he calls us to forgive all. Isn't he going against what God said? He calls us to forgive everyone? Well, if, if, you, if you have an enemy in your life, or someone has wronged you, the Bible will call, call calls you to forgive them and not to take... Yeah. And not to take... And not to take out vengeance. I think that's a so, personal thing. So, so if, you, if the Bible's calling us to forgive... Mm -hmm. Because God is a forgiving God. And the verse even says, now I'm paraphrasing, he says, because God the Father forgave you. Right. All right. So that's when it becomes personal. But then if, if you as a believer don't forgive someone else, and you were forgiven by God, that shows you do not understand what forgiveness is. So that, therefore, that, that verse only applies to... I think it applies to believers, that's yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that applies that's to believers. Believer. Yeah. I, as a believer... The, put it this way, there's no sin any of you could do in this room against me that would compare to the least sin I've done against God. <clears throat> All right. And God forgave me not only for those least sins, but for the big ones against them. Right. And I'm not, I'm not so All much right. worried about, about us, the Christians, that are forgiven. I'm thinking about and I think, I think half that was chosen to not be. All right. Let me. Let me. I'll get to that. The phrase I'm having the problem with. Yeah. Chosen. So that. that yeah. Let me. Okay. Well, maybe that. Okay. Yeah. Let me. Let me go back. That's hard to battle. Yeah. Let me go back and 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 talk about this thing. So the choice that God made for Alan Schaefer is before the time began, He chose me for, and and there's no and and that's because I'm a nicer person than other people in the world. He just chose me. All right. Um, so in eternity past, I was chosen by him to be glorified. Not to just be saved, but to be glorified. And see, that solves this whole issue of eternal security. I mean, that, that, that whole issue becomes a non-issue, if you understand that. Wait, when you look at... Huh? 
you look at Tully from that perspective, you can never lose. Yeah. Well, when you look at Romans chapter 8, all right, it says, uh, those whom he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And you don't see anybody lost along the way. You don't see any leakage from the, from, the just, from the called point or the predestined point to the glorified point. So the whole group, whatever group it was that was way back in eternity past, chosen, is the same group that in eternity future are there in heaven glorified. So the way to understand is God chose me to be with Him. He chose the end product, not the beginning product. He chose the end product. And He chose me to be glorified with Him in heaven. Before the first Adam existed in the universe, I was chosen. All right. However, then comes in this whole notion of um, why did God allow sin in the universe? Well, very simply, He allowed sin in the universe to glorify Himself. And you say, well, how can that glorify God? Well, what, what characteristics, what parts of God would we not understand if there had been no sin? We wouldn't understand mercy. We wouldn't understand grace. We would not understand forgiveness or justice. I mean, look at all of those qualities and attributes of God that we would just be totally oblivious of had there been no sin in the universe. So although God is not the author of sin in the universe, God certainly allowed it to exist. And He allowed it to exist to glorify Him. And I don't, that's some deep thinking there. I, I don't even pretend to grasp fully that. I'm just saying, my best understanding, that's why He allowed sin in the universe, to glorify Himself. Because He created everything to glorify Himself. It says that. All right? So, when you have the entry of sin and you have fallen human beings, what do those fallen human beings deserve? Death. So, if God were perfectly fair in, in our understanding of fairness, what would He do to every human being? Leave them alone. And where would they go? Yeah. If God did nothing, if God, if God did not interfere in your life, you'd be lost. Yeah, that, that's, that's, he would allow, that's, and God would be perfectly fair to allow you to, to, to do that. That's fair, because you deserve it. All right? Yeah. However, God, God designed before eternity began to glorify some of us out of the human group of people for his own purpose to, to, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, which we will get there, to be his trophies in eternity, to be put on display as objects of his grace. And why he did that is totally something that he only knows, no one else does. But he chose me to be glorified, so there had to be something to done about the sin problem, and that's where Christ came in to pay the price, the penalty for sin. So, in a very logical sense, who did Christ die for? Everybody? Well, no, He died for those whom God chose. Because He knew 
He knew who was going to be. And that's what Christ said. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. And this is where the sticky part comes in. And quite honestly, just to be honest with you, there are some mysteries about this particular point that, that is a source of great debate and division and argument, which I don't think there needs to be. But if they're tough to understand. For example, if, if Pastor were to be in here, he understands this a lot differently than I do, this, this particular point. Doesn't mean he's a bad guy. And, you know, I might get to heaven and he's right. I might get to heaven and I'm right. We may get to heaven and we're both wrong. All right? It's a tough, tough thing to understand. But let me tell you what I do not mean by that when I say Christ died for only elect. I do not mean that his death was limited in its ability or its value to redeem. Christ's death is an infinite death, which means that had God elected everybody to salvation, Christ's death would have been sufficient to redeem them all. It's not limited in its ability to redeem. It's only limited in the sense that it's limited to those who God chose. Because they are the only ones who will be redeemed. But that's God's problem, not mine. I don't, I don't see that peace, like, like I say, that arch. I don't see that from this time-temporal perspective. I don't see that. Yeah. It's really hard to accept that God created some people like the Jews always thought of all the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. That is yeah. really hard. The Bible teaches very clearly that those who, and, and this, is, this is where that paradox comes in, where you can't really fit the two pieces together. If you go to hell, you go there because you deserve it. I mean, nobody's going to go to hell and say, you know, God's been unfair because he didn't choose me. You deserve it. All right. Um, justice. You, justice has been served. And he's not willing that any should perish. It's not God's desire to send people to hell. That's the desire. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't, does it? No. And it won't. God's desire. It's not God's will. It's God's desire. You know, God's not up in heaven jumping up and down on a throne every time a sinner dies. All right. It doesn't bring joy to him. What do you do with John 3.16? Whoever, whoever. And who's the ones? And who's the ones that will? And who's the ones that will respond? Obviously, the correct answer is the elect. Yeah. But whoever. Well, let's go to John six. I mean, the answer is in John six. It's very simple. I mean, John six is the answer. I'm sorry, but this is. It's not. It's. It's tough. But but. I mean, I know Jesus. It's simple if you allow. It's simple if you allow the paradox to exist. It's not simple if you want an answer to everything. Is it irresponsible as a Christian not to take a stand on the truth like this? Because it's a lot more, it's a lot more comforting not to take a stand on it. You may, you may, you may have to sort it out for a while. Seriously, I mean, this is this is a tough issue. I mean, this is not. 
you don't have to take a stand on this. I mean, you know. And your stand might change over time. I mean, Don was, a, Don was an Arminian as the day was long, and he's now a converted Calvinist. Yeah, for years I believed that I chose God because I chose him, he chose me. I don't, I don't know that well anymore. What? Yeah. I like your illustration about the back. Yeah. That where inside we created the box and how can we protect it? We can't. That's the only way I understand it, too. And, and quite honestly, I'll be honest with you folks, you know, I'm just telling you my best understanding. Right. You have to sort this out yourself. What I'm, what I'm basically saying, I, I believe Scripture points to the fact that we are chosen and that we are predestined. And I always believe that. You know, but I, I bother to <coughs> say, and I pray for him constantly. And in my mind, as a Christian, as someone who knows the Lord, I can't imagine this God who loves me so much saying no to anybody. But why did, and here's the answer, that's a very good question and a very good point. Because why do you think God put it on, a burden on, on your heart for your father? But why but why your father and not the guy next door to the same degree? Because he's my father. It probably has something to do with it. Yeah. It would have something to do with your family. But but I, I think I think quite honestly God burdens us for people. And we need to pray that God would save them. And see the comforting thing about that, about one of the comforting things about this predestination thing. Is their salvation does not depend on me making it happen. Right. To the extent that if they're not saved, it's my fault. I didn't do something. Right. It's dependent on God. But the comforting thing about it is God can save. But that doesn't, of our responsibility. It doesn't open your mouth. Tell them about Christ. Share the because God. You may be the means whereby God brings the news to the elect. If he is elect, God will save her in spite of her. Right. See? But, that, like, but, but it's cool to be in on the blessing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. See, that's the nice thing about it. It's cool to be in on that. But in John chapter 6, um, he talks about it. Uh, in verse 38, I've come down. Well, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So who did the electing? God the Father, and he gave us to Christ. So Christ says, all that God gave me will come to me. Nobody gets lost. Nobody gets mixed up. But then it says, and whoever comes to me, I will not turn aside. Well, that's from the perspective of humanity. From the, from the perspective of eternity, God gave us to Christ and we will come to Him. But from the perspective of time, we come to Christ. And He won't turn us aside. And then He says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is not my plan. I came to do God's will. And what is God's will? Well, one, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all, of, that all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. Alright, so he's saying the will of God is that everyone that God gave me, whatever that group is, I would raise up at the last day. Alright, 
So I'll do a little bit of mathematical analysis here. If, if group is the first group, if all the Father gave Christ as group A, and they are the ones who are raised in the last day, all right, A equals B, right? That's, that's math, all right? And then the next verse says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, the ones who see the Son and believe on him, what do they get? They get raised up at the last day. Alright? So, if A is equal to B and C is equal to B, what's true about A and C? They're equal. So, all that the Father gave to me before time began, will in time do what? Come to Christ. This is the will of Him that sent me, that all that He has given me, I would lose them, but raise them up at the last day. And this is also the will of Him that sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have everlasting life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. So the ones who see the Son and believe on Him and are given everlasting life are the ones who are given to Christ before time began. It's the same group of people. And that's where you have to make, in your mind, a disconnect. Because you can't put that two, those two, two pieces together. All I know is this. When you go out and you talk to anybody about Christ, you can tell them that God says, whosoever will may come. And don't worry about election. Don't go out there and say, well, you know, what I'm going to do I'm going to be really effective in my evangelism explosion. What I'm going to do is I'm only going to witness to the elect. Well, how do you know they're elect? You don't know. So what do you do? You witness to everyone. And who will respond? The elect will respond. And they're not going to respond because you've got some great, wonderful presentation of the gospel or because you're extremely persuasive. They're going to respond because they're elect. And you just happen to be in on the blessing, when God moves and redeems that person. And when it comes back to this whole issue of praying for others, I have a neighbor who is lost. She's totally lost. And uh, she's bound in a system of belief called Mormonism. And there's no way I'm going to logically persuade her to leave that system. I'm not going to even try because it ain't going to work. So what I do is I pray for her salvation. And I don't worry about, well, God, you know, maybe she's elect, maybe she's not, you know. I don't even worry. I just say, God, save her. Because what is God's will? He's told us to save people. So, and he's obviously given Donna and I a burden for this person for a reason. So I don't worry about that. I just ask God to save her. And I'll say the same about your father or anybody else in your life. Don't worry about elect, non-elect share the gospel, and pray that God would save them. Because God, God has to break through the darkness. You've heard the phrase, prayer changes things. Is that the same thing as saying that, uh, that God changes his mind? No, God does not change his mind. But God uses our prayers as a means whereby his will is affected in the world. You said a mouthful and didn't say anything. 
That's right. Yo. Yeah, yo. God, God uses my prayers as the means whereby his sovereign will is affected. If God has decided to do something, does it matter whether I pray or not? No, he's going to do it. But if I, God lays a burden on my heart to pray about something, he does that, what does that do to my faith? Strengthens it and increases it. Don't get into this fatalism. See, that's the problem if you go down too far down this road of God's sovereignty. You just throw your hands and say, well, you know, why do anything? I mean, after all, God's going to do it. Why, why even worry about it? Well, you can't fall into that. Because you don't see what God's going to do. And by the way, God has commanded you, if for nothing else, God has commanded you to witness. And has commanded you to pray. And has commanded you to be spirit-filled. He's commanded you to, to obey Him. So if for nothing else, you do it because God commanded it. And you know, one of the good verses in First Timothy two ten, no, Second Timothy two ten, Paul says, "I suffer all things for the elect's sake, so they may obtain the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus." They're elect, but they're not yet saved. See, Paul doesn't worry about that. You know, Paul doesn't go into town and say, "Okay, let me find the elect people. I'll just talk to them." He talked to everybody. And I like the way somebody put it. He says, uh, somebody asked him, said, do you believe in election? Yeah. Well, if you do, why do you go door to door? And he says, well, I know the more doors I knock on, the more elect I find. Now, did, now Christ, did he know that a lot of people reject him? But yet he offered the message to everyone. Don't worry about, you, you, can't, you can't allow, I, I, I sort of put it this way, I'm a spiritual schizophrenic. In a sense that when it comes to theology, I am as Calvinistic and Reformed as the day is long. Soteriologically, when it comes to salvation. When it comes to practice, I'm as Arminian as the day is long. Because I don't know if they're elect or not. See? But I also need to realize that there's nothing in my persuasive ability that's going to make a lost person saved. Are you going to save somebody in and of your own self? Are you going to be able to persuade them mentally or emotionally to be a Christian? The problem is when you do that, are they really saved? No, they're not. I, I personally accept the fact that we within ourselves cannot choose God. God has to do that. Right. But where I, what I really wrestle with really bothers me, to be honest, is that why he would choose one individual, not the other. That means for those of us that have family, those that have children, you know, you can have four children, then you got to think, okay, it's very possible one of these four children, maybe all of them, are chosen. And it may be possible they all are. And they all, either are, right. You know, so it's like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that... And the problem is, and that's where... That's where you can't get wild, you can't get balled up in that. Well, how, how could I? How could I be? How could any any Christian be in heaven where it's all pure, all joy, knowing that the Father? The he erases all. He remains. He erases all remembrances of this life from our minds. And here's the other thing to understand. And I know this sounds harsh. It sounds cruel. It sounds heartless. But if you were to die tonight and go to heaven, and you were to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that somebody, some close friend, family member would be in hell, they would never be saved, you would understand that God is still just. Because you'd have a different view. 
That sounds heartless. It sounds cruel, and I certainly don't mean it to be that. All right. Yeah. He's the big. Has he sees the big picture? But I have I have a hard time with this. I, you know, that how far in advance God sees. You know, God sees. He knows right. every person that's going to get saved. He knows right. whether my that kids are going to be saved. He knows whether my kids' kids are going to be saved. And and I, I sit there and I'm like, oh, you know, because I could never imagine. But but I think that far ahead, and that's that's what I have a hard time with because I'm like, Lord, well. And this, so that's how I end up wrestling. I end up in this circle. And, and, and it's a tough circle. I mean, I look at it my own self. I, you know, I've been working on my family history for some time now. And there's a lot of people in there that I will never see in heaven. I will never see them. There's some that I will. And God has laid a burden on my heart for some of them to pray that God would redeem them, that God would open their eyes. I pray for all of them, but there's some in particular that God's called me to pray for. Why? You know? Yeah. Do you? Are there people that you're more close to? There are people that I know, and, and there are some that just for whatever reason, there's one particular person I have probably met her two times in my private, previous, till, till four weeks ago, I had met her twice in my life. And I've met her four times since. And, uh, for whatever reason, God has given me a, a burden for that particular. She's my second cousin. And uh, God's given me a burden to pray for. There's a reason why. I don't know why. I can't explain it. You know, and, and I think you have to all admit the same thing. That there are those that, that for some unknown, mystical, odd reason, you feel drawn to pray for. Yeah. In a very real sense. There's certain kids in that high school Sunday that I have a humongous burden on my heart for them. My heart, my heart just breaks from constantly. But so the kids that for some reason they can't understand, it's not as strong. Does that mean God can give someone else a burden for those things? Yeah, he sure can. He sure so can. can't say If you get too balled up into this thing, you will go insane. I believe that. <laughs> yeah, I have for me personally, I have um, observed this direction, predestination, the stuff in my mind. Um, I look at it. I look at it as uh, it's a document for a Christian. Yeah. For me, it's not for non-believer. Yeah, you don't argue theology with an unbeliever. It is for a Christian, and I see it as um, it's there for me to serve for you know, as assurance. And also for, to, to make me humble that, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't choose God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon and, said uh, that. And then the other thing is that um, I don't know who God has elected, has predestined. So as a Christian, you know, I have to go out and... Tell everybody. You know, to everybody or to anybody that comes in my way. Um, so I'm, I'm a great believer in evangelism. You know, I'll go out and every opportunity I get, I'm, you know, I'm going to witness to people. And because I know I am able to keep the two, you know, separate. So I'm not worried about, is this, uh, this person heretic or, you know, or not. I, I keep that separate. I know that's a doctrine for me. Yeah. It, it is for my choice. I know that my eternity is secure 
because the Maghreb was also uh, you know, from the beginning of the world, Nagarach was saying, you know, he's directed uh, me, and I've been saved, and I went to heaven, and nothing can change that. No. And uh, it also keeps me humble because uh, I know it's all God's doing. But then uh, I'm out there and I'm listening to people because I don't know who's going to trust me. That, that's the way to do it. And, and see, Charles, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, said that, that the reason most Christians buck against this whole notion of election is pride. We want to think that we deserved it. We deserve salvation. Or we've done something for it or whatever. There, there's a part of us that says, I, I deserve it. And when you, when you come to the point to understand that the only thing that separates you from Adolf Hitler is God's choice, that humbles you. That is a very humbling thing. And it, it, it really sheds all the spotlight for that on God. God is the one who gains all the glory. See, if we did something for our salvation, when we got to heaven, we could sit around all of eternity congratulating each other on what we earned. We didn't earn anything. It's by grace. And like you said, I think it's true. Someone said this is a family doctrine. This is, this is something that we wrestle with as believers. Um... But it's not something to, you know, to argue with your unsaved relatives about. No. They wouldn't understand. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> they don't understand that. that. <laughs> you know, I, they don't understand that. You know, all I know is that for every single verse, and we have to move on in the passage. We could be here all night. But for every single verse in the Bible that says, whosoever will may come, I'll give you one other verse that says, you were chosen before time began. And somehow, whatever system that you come up with, whatever way do you understand this that you have, you got to put both of those pieces together. You got to be able to explain both sides of that equation. That's that's tough. And I don't I don't pretend to have the answer. I'm telling you my understanding. But you have to do that for yourself. It's a tough one. But don't. You know, one, one final note on this, like, like uh, she said there, don't let your theology get in the way of you witnessing. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that God does not want is for us to say, well, we're, you know, if they're elect, if they're lost or elect, they're going to get to heaven, whether I witness or not, so bag this. E -e -e. I'm not going to tell them about Christ. And, you know, I sit there and look at Paul. Paul was probably the number one Calvinist in theological history. I mean, he knew it. And yet, what did he do? He gave his life. To take the gospel. Don't become fatalistic. Don't just throw your hands up and go with the flow. Be part of it. But it says we got to move on here. In verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he adopt us to why did he predestine us to adoption? By his own good pleasure of his will. The bottom line is he wanted to do that. It was his Sovereign choice to do that. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. And that could be in the Beloved One. How is it that God is able to redeem us? How is it He's able to do that? Death of Christ. The death of Christ. I have a tape... What I'll do, I'm going to copy it. And I'll bring it in. I'll, I'll let you all listen to it. It's by John MacArthur. But um, 
he does an excellent job, I think, of, of talking about this whole thing that, that may be helpful. You may disagree with and that's fine, but uh, it may be helpful to maybe sort some of this stuff out. Because it, it's a tough doctrine. I'm not, you know, you did not take this class to be given the easy stuff, I hope. You know. Um, and then it says, it, Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So from the Father's side, what we see is we see the source, he is the source of our spiritual blessing. He's the one who chose us. He's the one who, and by the way, election just means choice. He's the one who predestinated us to be adopted as his children. And then what Christ did is, is he paid the ransom price. Christ did not choose us. God the Father chose us. But Christ paid the ransom price for our sin. That's what it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through his blood. And the blood there refers to not only the, the way he died, but the sacrificial death that he suffered. Christ died for me. And it's, it's in that that I have redemption. And the word redemption there, apolutreo, means to buy out of the marketplace. And it was used to refer to the act of buying a slave and then freeing that slave by paying the purchase price, the redemption price for that slave. He redeemed me from sin. And it says according to the riches of his grace. And it's not out of, but it's according to. And I like the way somebody says, if a millionaire gives you five bucks, he gives you out of his wealth. He gives, gives you 5,000, he gives you according to his wealth. All right? God, and see, this, this is the other thing that's so hard, for, you know, when I think about this. Hardly, hardly a night goes by when I'm laying there before I go to sleep thinking about God's choice. And he tells me, I, I, have, I have a very, it's a very humbling thing. But not only did he choose me, but he lavished his riches on me. I mean, it's one thing for God to let me into heaven to sweep the streets. It's another thing to make me a co-heir with Christ. I mean, that's a whole different level. Um, do I check when he says in the back Galatians, the co-equal with Christ? Yeah, that was... Uh... I can't even fathom. I can't either. I can't... In heaven, there's no private property. There's no need for lawyers. There is no private property. We inherit it all. We get everything. We, there's not a single spiritual blessing that is not ours. You know, stop and think about that. You don't get to heaven. God says, okay, you can sit over in the corner there. I mean, we get it all. And that goes back to that word there, adoption. Remember, we talked about it in Galatians. We have been placed as a son in God's family equal with, and in terms of, of, of what we inherit, with Christ. Not because we deserve it, but because he is gracious. And that, that is, I, boy, I'll tell you what. See, God not only saves you, He then transforms you. He then lavishes His riches upon you. He makes you a co-equal heir with Christ. 
and you don't deserve a single bit of that. How can you lose? <clears throat> Which he made to abound towards us in our wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Again, this is the second time which says which he purposed in himself. He decided to do this. God purposed this. And what is the mystery of his will? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, in him. Gather all of us together in Him, and the word mystery here—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, not a—you uh, know—who did this kind of murder? Kind, you know, the, the who done it um, notion of mystery. But it's something that God had purposed all along, but He just now got around to revealing it. And what is this thing He just got around to revealing? That in the fullness of time, He would gather together in one body all things in Christ. Both are which are in heaven and which are earth, even in him. And in, in Ephesians 2, I think this is our, somewhat a hint. In Ephesians 2 particularly, it's the Jew and the Gentile made one body in Christ. Gather together everybody in Christ. And, and the whole point there is if you get to heaven, how do you get there? In Christ. You don't get there any other way. I mean, you want to get to heaven, you go that way. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance. Wow, see, that, that's the other... That's the additional, not only do we get to heaven, we get an inheritance there. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's number three. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to do it. And notice what it, notice the according to the wills here. First of all, we were chosen in, in verses three and four according to his will. In verse seven, we are forgiven according to the good pleasure of his will. And now in verse 12, we are in a sense, glorified according to the good pleasure of his will. So if you want to see how this works out, all right, in eternity past, why were we chosen? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. In time, in verse 7 and 8, why were we forgiven? Because he wanted to. He chose to do that. And why in eternity future do we get an inheritance glorification? Because he wanted to. Now, here's the thing. Do you see anything in there? Because I did anything. It's because he wanted to. So who gets the credit? God does. And that's the way God's designed salvation. God did not design salvation to be a reward for people who, who, who made a good choice. Because then we'd be sitting around heaven talking about how we got there. You know, what'd you do to get here? You know, if we were all sit around heaven and ask why do we get there, the answer would be, you know, I have really no good idea at all why I got here. Ask God, and God would say, well, I just wanted to. Good pleasure of His will. That's that's it. There's no other explanation. So, what if someone, what if someone's thinking it was that? They were involved in this and they made a choice. That's No. For years, Don thought he chose God, and then finally he found out, no, God chose him. That doesn't, it doesn't, 
again, you got to understand, and there, by the way, there's a lot of people in heaven that really never understand this in life. This is a, this is a difficult doctrine. It's not, it's not simple. Yeah, you like, struggle with it. You got to deal with them. God, right. you know, predetermined. You can't. And you can't skip over the other verses that command us to witness, command us to pers- you know to do all we can to persuade men, command us to go thee therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. You can't skip those verses either. I don't deny all that, but I why first of all that's the only answer. That's the only answer you'll ever get. Yeah, that's, that's my battle. And, and see, it's interesting because Christ was asked that question on one occasion. Disciples, he was talking to the disciples, and, and I think it's Luke 14, if I'm not mistaken. He says, do you suppose that... Uh, well, the disciples came and talked to him about the men that... Uh, they're talking about you know, some of the judgment that fell on people. And the mentality from the disciples and from the Jesus days, if you got... If some catastrophe happened to you because you did something, you sinned. I mean, that's the question. Now, who did sin? This man or his parents said he was born blind. Somehow they had this notion that if he was born blind, he did something. All right, it was his fault. So Christ said, you, don't you suppose that those uh, people that the tower fell on down in Salome, do you think they were worse sinners than anybody else in Galilee? He says, may I tell you, if you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what about those people that, uh, that were killed when they were given their offering and Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifice? Do you think they were worse than the other people around now I tell you, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. And here's the point that Christ is making. Never ask, why did God choose that person or why did God not choose that person? That's not the question. The question to wrestle with is, why did he choose me? And I don't have a real good answer on that. Because he wanted to. See? And, and you know, I hear a lot of people say, no, and I've heard it, you know. Why does God decide to use that person in ministry? You know, they're a bum. You know, I've heard that. He's a lot of bums. You know? And I don't even ask that anymore. I don't ask that. You know, I, I, to, me, to me, the issue is not why does God use Willie of all people. Yeah, he's going to use all people. Why does God use me? Why does God use me? That's the question. See, that, that folks, like she said, that brings the issue, not, not why to them or why not, that brings it back to why me? Because, see, I know how cruddy I am. And God still uses me. And I don't know why. That, in the verse 12, that we who first trust in Christ Jesus would be to the praise of his glory. Why did we trust in Christ Jesus? Because he redeemed us. And whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Oh. So we got Christ paying a ransom price. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he seals us. And we know from other passages, he does some other things. He regenerates. He preserves. He prays for us. He convicts of sin. Spiritual gifts. See, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing to understand. 
You're so, you and I are so cruddy that it takes all three members of the Trinity to get us to heaven. You know, God chose us. Christ paid the ransom price to redeem us. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us, seals us with the Holy Spirit upon us, because we're the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us. He preserves us. God sustains you from moment to moment. You're sustained in your regenerate condition by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. If God were to walk away for a split second, he'd fall back to the spiritual death that you came from. He's the one who keeps us saved. He's the one who preserves us. Doesn't pickle you, he preserves you. There's a difference. All right? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? Who's the purchased possession? You. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee that someday we will get everything. So here's a question. Can you lose it? You didn't do anything to get it, did you? So how can you do anything to lose it? See, if you really understand, I think, if you really get a grasp on some of these principles here, it's, it just answers so many questions that people struggle with. You know, I mean, I grew up with the idea that, you know, if I witness to somebody and they don't come to Christ, it's my fault. It's my fault. I, I, must have said, I must not have said something and they're lost. It's my fault that they didn't get there. That's how Finney would have felt. See, Finney, Finney felt that he was a lawyer. He felt, if I give us a, a, a sufficiently persuasive argument, I can, I can win anybody. And you can't do that. And I remember, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine who, I told you this before, and he, one week he went out and he made the presentation of his life. He said that he, they, they should have taped that, should have taken a you know, video camera, taped it, and we should have sent out to every clinic to show you how, you how you should do it. And I said, what happened? He said, nothing. <laughs> and he said, the next week I went out, and they should have taped that. And they should have sent that out and said, now here's how you not, you're not to present the gospel. This is what you should not do. I said, what happened? He said, they all came to Christ. <laughs> the point is, it's not what you do and what you don't do. It's God who's going to turn the light on. You just be there to be used. You be part of the solution. See, see, you don't know whether God's chosen to use you as the means whereby that elect person hears the message. And see that, you may be the means whereby your prayer is the means whereby God redeems that person. You don't know that. I love the way it's put in Esther, in Esther chapter 4, verse 8. She's struggling, you know, should I go into the king? He might kill me. And Mordecai says, you know what, if you don't go, God's going to redeem his people. Whether you go or not, God will redeem his people. But who knows, maybe God made you queen for this very reason. And if you don't go, you and your father's house will lose a blessing. Want to be in on the blessing? That's a question. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.